The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Esther chapter 8 is where we'll be this morning. It's good to see you guys this morning. I'm glad that you're here. It'd be depressing to be by myself. Really would be. Esther chapter 8 will be our focus, just one chapter, because last week I forced you to sit through three. So I'll try to just make you sit through one this week. Let's do a quick recap, though, of where we're at in the book so far before we dive into this chapter. You will remember at the very beginning, we're introduced to a king. This is King Xerxes. He's throwing a big party in the land. Uh, While at the party, he thinks it's a good idea to ask his queen to come and to parade around her beauty, Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti decides this is not a good idea, so she tells him no and says, no, I will not come. As a result, the smart men, quote unquote, uh, of the land come up with a plan. They banish Vashti from, from the land, and they say that this will teach all women to respect their husbands and to be good wives. But now there was a problem after this. Now the king didn't have a queen, and so a few years later we see he's lonely, Again, his wise men come up with a plan for him to get a a new queen. They're going to take virgins of the land. They're going to round them up. They're going to make them look pretty and train them for a year. And then after that, they will spend the night with the king. And whoever the king enjoys or likes the best will be the queen. This is where Esther comes into play. Because we see that Esther is the one who's chosen. She's chosen to be the queen. Now, Through this, we have seen God's hand working and moving, even though God is not mentioned at all anywhere throughout Esther, but we see his hand moving and working in the midst of this. And remember, as we've gone through this, we've we've talked about this pretty extensively. We can't really read into the motives of the people of the story. We we like to do that. Uh, We like to think of Esther and her beauty and in her purity and all these things. But the fact is, as we read these pages, we don't know if that's true. We do not know why she entered the contest. We know that she wouldn't tell anybody that she was a Jew. She was hiding that. We don't know Mordecai's uh, motivations and the decisions and the things that he has done. And so we have to be careful uh, that we don't put good motives on them. But also, I guess we can't put bad motives as well. But what is important, I think, that we see as we continue to go through this, that regardless of the motives that was happening and that was taking place, We definitely see God's hand moving and working throughout this whole story. So Esther now is queen. Uh, We have a new man that comes onto the scene, Haman. Haman rises to be second in the kingdom. And Haman does not like the fact that when he leaves the courts, that everybody bows to him, everybody honors him, except for one person, Mordecai. Mordecai would not bow to him and would not honor him. Again, we looked at that pretty deeply. It could have been a family feud that went way back all the way to King Saul and King Agag because Esther in the book of Esther, it's very clear that tells us Mordecai was a Benjamite, just like King Saul. It tells us that Haman was an Agagite from King Agag. And there's a reason for that, that this feud was still going on and there was hatred between these clans and between these families. And so Haman being angry, comes up with a plan, goes to the king. The king allows him to write a law into the land. And what this law says is that 11 months from when this law was written, it was okay for everybody of the land to kill all the Jews. That's what was put out. Kill them and plunder them. So of course, the Jewish people mourn. Mordecai, we see him mourning, and we see later that Esther finds out what is going on, and she's kind of stuck in a weird position because she's trying to decide, what am I to do? Nobody knows that I'm a Jew. I haven't disclosed that to anybody, but what needs to be done? Because she, she cares for her people. Finally, she gets to the point after talking with Mordecai some, and they say, maybe God has you in this position for a reason. Maybe, Esther, you're where you are for a reason. And Esther finally gets to the point to where she says, I will go before the king and give a petition to him. And if I die, I die. 
We see this great faith all of a sudden in her, in her God and saying, you know, if, if, I, if I die in this situation, so be it. But, but I think this is what God has brought me here for and this is what he is leading me to do. And so last week we saw her go before the king. She went before the king. She found favor in the king's eyes as she went to him very humbly. And he points the golden scepter at her, which means I accept you. She ends up throwing a party for him and for Haman. It's a great party. They, they love it. The king says, what do you want, Esther? Anything, anything in my kingdom, I will give you anything at all. And she says, I just want you to come to a, a second banquet. And at that one, I will tell you exactly what I want. Well, we then see Haman leave this party, just as static what is going on. But again, Mordecai catches his eye. And so just as quickly as he was elevated to feeling so great about himself, just seeing one man demoralizes him, demoralizes him so much that he goes home. He has to tell everybody in his home how good he is. He talks about all of his accolades. He says, but this Mordecai. And so the people in his house, including his wife, develop a plan. You should build some gallows and have Mordecai killed tomorrow. So he says, that's a good idea. And so we saw that that is exactly what happens. He has these gallows built. He gets up early in the morning to go talk to the king, but it just so happens that the king has had a rough night. He hasn't been able to sleep. And so he has the history of the land read to him. And it just so happens that what is read to him is the account of Mordecai saving the king's life of hearing of an assassination plot, and, and it all became true. And the king asked the question, what did we ever do for that guy? And the answer was nothing. And so he says, who's out, who's out who can come in and tell me what I should do? And it just so happens that Mordecai, or that Haman was entering at that time. And so Haman comes in and the king says, what do I do for my favorite person in all the land? And Haman, if you remember, says, that's me. He's talking about me here. This is what you should do. And he comes up with this just great plan of putting royal robes on him and the king's horse and people walking behind saying, this is the man that the king honors. Well, to Haman's disgust, the king says, go find Mordecai and do that for him. And Haman, you be the one. You be the one to shout. You be the one to praise him. You be the one to let everybody know. So Haman does this. And then he goes home and he cries and he whines to his family of what has happened and what has gone on. And before they can even devise a plan, Haman is grabbed and he's rushed to the banquet with Esther and the king. And so there he is with Esther and with the king. And we saw there last week that Esther tells the king exactly who or what she desired. She said, there is someone in the land trying to kill all of my people. The king says, who is it? And she says, it is the wicked Haman. The king is outraged. He leaves. He comes back at the exact same time, coincidentally, that Haman is falling onto the couch. And he says, you're going to even assault my wife while you are here. And he punishes Haman by execution on the gallows that he had made for Mordecai to die on. That's where we left last week. And so now we get to Esther chapter eight and we see what happens from here on out. So follow with me, beginning in verse one. It says, on that day, King Asurus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his own signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. So let's stop there real quickly. So all this is happening. All this is taking place. Haman is now dead. And the king goes to Esther and he says, Esther, I am going to give you Haman's house. I'm going to give you all of it. And she now has the courage to bring Mordecai in and to say, this is, this is my family member. This is somebody that I'm related to. And the king honors Mordecai, which we've really expected all along. I mean, he saved the king's life. We thought that he would be honored, but he wasn't back then. And now he's given the ring saying, really, he's second in charge. That, that what Mordecai says goes. The king puts great trust now in Mordecai, which, again, you really have to question this king and his leadership style. He seems to just be willing to give people power at the whim, right, at, at anything. And he says, all right, here you go, Mordecai. And then Esther gives Mordecai Haman's home. He says, this is 
what I give you and you can take care of it and it is now, it is now yours. I really think one could question as we read what happens in verses 1 of 2 of chapter 8. What if Esther just would have came out all along and said, I'm a Jew? What if from the very beginning she did not hide her identity? She didn't hide her relationship with Mordecai. Would all of this been solved long time ago? And we can look at this and we can say, this is how God orchestrated it and planned it. But we do have to look at it and say, <clears throat> there really was some bad decisions made all along. We can't look at it <clears throat> and see sin within it and say, well, that was good sin because it came out to be a good result. Now, there's, there's no such thing as that. There's no such thing as, as good sin, as okay sin. And I know that question came to my mind as I was reading this. What if she just at the very beginning would have said, I'm a Jew. Would the king, all of this have been wiped away when Haman came to him and said, I want to kill the Jews? Would the king have then said, no, my wife's one. No, Mordecai's one. No, I like them. Would all of this have been solved? I, I mean, again, I don't, I don't know. I just think it's an interesting question to ask as we look at these verses. Now, verse three it says, now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman, the Agagite, and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, if it pleases the king and if I found favor in his sight and the thing seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? One of the things that's refreshing to see here with Esther is that Esther again goes before the king and she's doing this for the sake of her people, for the, for the Jewish people. And she feels this great burden for her people. The, this understanding seems to be in her that we see in verse 6 that it's not enough that the king maybe has granted her salvation, but she wants to see her people to have received salvation as well. And she's like, what is it for me if I'm standing here in this palace and yeah, I'm saved, but I have to watch as all my countrymen are annihilated from the land. What, what good is that to me then in, in my heart? And so you notice the heartbreak that she has because she goes to the king in a very different way than she went to him the first time. The first time she put on royal robes, she stood off into the distance and just waited as the king might notice her. This time it says she falls on her face before the king, desperate, similar to how Haman was falling before her just a little bit ago. Now she weeps and she falls before this king. This is the reaction that maybe we would have expected all along from Esther. She knows at this point she has no other option. There's no other option to play. There's, there's no other pawns that can be moved. This is her only option. It's time to beg for mercy from the king, for her people. Not for her life necessarily at this point, but for her people, the people that she loves, the people that have raised her, where she has come from. So let's look at how the king responds in verses seven and eight. It says, then King Hasuru said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So here we have the king's response. It's not... The best response, it's not maybe the response that we wanted, but we see the king's response. In verse 7, it seems as if what the king is saying to Esther, this is what it seems, it seems as if what the king is doing is he's saying, I've already dealt with this. I killed Haman and I gave you his house. I gave you all of his authority and all of his rule. Why are you asking for more? I mean, that's really what it seems like, I think, as we, as we look at these verses. And you wonder, why would the king think, why would he presume that Esther and Mordecai would be okay with just their safety and not the rest of the Jews? Well, 
It speaks to his character. I think it actually fits in very well to the character that we've seen of this king all along. He was very selfish. He functioned selfishly all the time. And so he assumed that that's how everybody else would function as well. And so he thought, I've saved you. I've blessed you. I've given you power. I've given you status. What more really would you want? But then we see in verse 8 that he does kind of move on. And the king lets Mordecai now write a new edict. And this is a good thing, but it really does show how little the king cares. Because Esther went to him to say, my people are going to be annihilated. I'm not doing anything about that. I've helped you out. That's enough. Go, go write something. I, I don't really care what you write. I, I don't care how you figure it out, but know this. You can't revoke the old law because it was sealed with my signet ring. So you can't just say, hey, that law doesn't exist anymore. That's not an option. But you can go write whatever else you want. What great leadership from this king. <clears throat> I don't care. Just leave me alone. Do whatever. Maybe you've been in that position before with your children. I don't really care what you do. Just get away from me. Just get out of my sight. Just, just leave me alone. Now, I don't think you really mean that. They can do whatever they want. They might take it that way. You've got to be careful when you say those things. But maybe that's how the king is feeling at this moment. Again, it's a bad sign of leadership. It's a bad way to run things. But really, the king was, was bound. That uh, commentary I read from last week, Ian Duguid's commentary on Esther, he says this at one point. He said, the empire is so law-bound that it is tied in impenetrable bureaucratic knots, and its emperor cares absolutely nothing about his people. What a world we live in. When I read that quote, I thought he was writing it about where we live if I'm being quite honest, so much red tape, everything tied up everywhere that it seems as if oftentimes our government doesn't really care about us. They care about the rules and the laws, not the people that it helps govern. Have you ever felt that way before? I know for me, I, there's some things I'm trying to do even in my own yard, dig a hole and all the permits and stuff I have to get and drawings. I'm like, I'm digging a hole. I just want a hole. Yeah, but you got to do all these things. This doesn't make sense. Yeah, but it's the law always has been. Okay, even though it doesn't make sense, let's keep moving forward with it. I mean, that's what we're seeing here in Persia a long time ago. It's, it's the exact same scenario and it's the exact same situation. Because the king led badly and let Haman write whatever he wanted and seal it, it's stuck. You can't go back on it now. And so he finally tells Mordecai, you write something else. So let's look at verse 9 through 14 together. It says, so the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Hasuru, sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horseback riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. On one day, in all the provinces of King Asuras, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command and the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel. So this is the edict that we get. Mordecai, what he writes, parallels very closely what Haman had wrote before. The Jews could kill the Persians, and not just those who came at them necessarily, but their families as well. This edict was put in place. And then also they could plunder them. They could take all of their possession. Now the main difference that we see in Haman's edict and what we see in Mordecai's edict is this idea of self-defense. Now I'm not going to push this farther to say that this made this an okay edict. And we'll talk more about holy war a little bit later. But there wasn't an, an attitude of self-defense. Now, 
Mordecai kind of pushes it too far. It doesn't just say, hey, defend yourself. It says, by the way, after you deal with the man who came to kill you and you've defended yourself, hey, go find his wife and his kids and do the same to them. So we have to be careful to stand on this and say, this is self-defense that's happening here. It kind of gets pushed a little farther and it makes us have to answer some questions about morality when we're reading this passage. And when I say this, I, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, so please don't feel hurt by this. In order to be a Christian and to really go know God's word, it takes some, it takes some study. All right, it takes us to be willing to put our thinking caps on and answer some really hard, tough questions like this one. To be able to answer, why is this here? Mordecai gets raised up. You're telling me God's hand is in all of this. And now the edict that Mordecai writes isn't defend yourself. It's defend yourself, kill them, plunder them. Isn't that a little too far? We have to be able to answer that question. We have to be able to talk about these things because this is our book. This is our family. This is our lineage as Christians. This is what we hold to, and we believe it's inerrant. We believe it's all true. We can't cut and paste. We can't say, well, I don't really like that, so I don't read it. it God's name's not even mentioned in Esther. Just skip it. Don't worry about it. Well, we got to be careful with that. And so at the end of the message, hopefully we'll do our best to answer that question. Let's look at verses 15 and 17. It says, so Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. This is a really good section. We see in verse 15 there that Mordecai comes out arrayed in splendor. We've been talking about reversals all through the book of Esther. And here we see one of the great reversals, right? Because not too long ago, Mordecai was dressed in sackcloth and ashes and mourning and lamenting. Remember, and Esther tried to get him some clothes and he, he pushed them aside. He was, he was weeping and mourning because of what the Jews faced. And now we see him just a couple chapters later walking out of the king's palace arrayed in splendor, sackcloth and ashes to royal robes and beauty and power even. In verses 15 through 16, we see the people rejoicing over what was happening. You remember when the first edict was read, it said the people of the land were confused. Remember, they were confused by the king's edict to kill all the Jews. Now this time we see the people are happy with what is being, being said here and what the king has put into law. But we see God's people again going from what they have in, ver in chapter 4, verse 3, of weeping and mourning, lamenting, sackcloth and ashes, to partying in the streets. Now, maybe you're like me, maybe not. But it kind of looks like they're rejoicing. Might be a little early, don't you think? <clears throat> I mean, an edict was put in place. But the day hadn't come for them to fight yet. They haven't won. They don't know if they're going to live or die at this point. But they're, but they're happy at what has happened and what is taking place. It was interesting. In one of the commentaries I read, they asked a question. They said, with so much changing in this story so fast, if you pause to think about it for a moment, what has changed for the Jew at this point? Actually, nothing. Nothing has really changed at this point. I mean, they can defend themselves, but they went from being held captive in a land to then being said they were going to be destroyed in the land to then being said you're going to have a chance to fight for yourself when actually all along through this whole, all, whole process, all of this stuff was future things. And so they were just stressed and worried about all these future things when in actuality their life hadn't really changed in the present at all or in the moment. And you notice that their complaining is about situations. Their complaining is about these external circumstances that they are facing. This is the things that they are struggling with. Really, when you look at it, you see a real lack in the trust of their God. You do see that. 
The way that they waver so much in their life from anxiety to highs of highs to lows of lows over and over and over again, you really do see a a lack of true trust in their God and in their king. But here we see them rejoicing. We see them happy because to them, it seems that their earthly situation has just gotten much better. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens at the end of this chapter in verse 17. At the end, it says, then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now, I would like to think that these were real conversions and maybe some of them were. I hope some of them were, but it doesn't say that. Fear, fear overcame them. And so maybe of them, many of them might've been, well, Mordecai's a Jew, he's in power. Esther's a Jew, she's the queen. This edict just went out. Maybe this land's starting to favor the Jews. I'm a Jew. I'm in. I'm, I'm all in here. It might seem silly to you, but it wasn't too long ago in our own country. That's what would be proclaimed about being a Christian. I'm a Christian. And that was a good thing. That provided you safety. That provided you comfort. That provided you care. And slowly, as we've seen the tide turn in our country, you don't hear that as much anymore. You see real Christians standing up often, very proud of their faith, but the nominal Christians seem to be fading away. So as we look at this chapter, what can we learn? Well, I think three things. I hope to hit on them really quickly. First is this. There is a danger that we face as Christians when God saves us by his grace to only care about the fact that God has saved us by his grace And not the fact that he calls us to go and share the good news with others, that his saving grace is available. We see this in Esther, how Esther wouldn't just sit back and be happy that she was saved by the king, but no, she would go to the king and fall on her face to save her people. It was not okay that only she received salvation. She wanted to see others receive salvation as well. I don't know about you, but I can feel this urge sometimes in my life, in my faith, to be selfish also, where I'm not willing to share the gospel with someone for whatever reason. There's many of them that we could fall into the trap of, just being nervous, being scared, not sure what to say, feeling uncomfortable, to actually downright just thinking, you know what, I don't think you deserve it, as if we're the judge. But that's not what we're saved to as Christians. God has saved us, and when he he saves us by his grace and by faith, we believe in Christ. What we see then is God giving us a command. This is in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. He says, go and make disciples now. Go and make disciples. Yes, I've done this in your life, but I'm going to do it in others' lives as well. Go and make disciples. Share the gospel with them. Don't be happy that it's just the fact that I saved you, but that I'm actually willing to save others. And so this passion should run deep inside of us. We, we want to share the gospel, number one, because God commands it of us. And if God is who he says he is, and if he's done in our life what he says he has done, then what he commands me to do, I must do. And that is go and make disciples. Go and share the gospel. But then secondly, I think we do it because we have a love for people. And if I'm being quite honest, this is me being honest. This is where I fall mostly. Where I have to ask myself, do I really love people enough to put Tim aside, you know, to put my, my pride aside or whatever it may be to step out and to be willing to share the gospel with somebody? To be willing to put myself in a vulnerable situation. Why? Because God has commanded me to and also because I love this person in front of me. I want them to know God's goodness. I want them to see it. But oftentimes I think we struggle with these things. But we can learn from Esther here that we should be willing to say, if I die, I die for the sake of the gospel message. Second thing I think that we can learn is we can look at King Xerxes or Hasuerus, whatever you want to call him, his justice, and then we can look at Mordecai's justice, and then we can look at 
the true king of kings justice. When we look at King Xerxes' justice, he really does not seem to care much about justice. We don't see that in him anywhere in these passages, unless you say, well, he had Haman killed. Okay, but I mean, he doesn't really do much else. Everybody else seems to be running things, seems to be making decisions. He's just a rich guy on top. That's what it seems like. And so for him, justice is selfish. Justice is sinful. When we look at Mordecai's justice, as Mordecai writes this new edict, it really falls in line with one of the things that we see in the Old Testament that I've already mentioned, this idea of holy war. If you remember back what I talked about earlier, the fight that was happening between Haman's family and Mordecai's family for a long time now, all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God would tell King Saul to go up against the Amalekites and King Agag, and he would say, destroy every single one of them. Man, woman, child, kill them all. And it seems this edict that Mordecai would write is connected to that. And another one of the reversals that we've been seeing all throughout Esther. Haman would do his best to destroy Israel, but here a a Benjamite reverses it and says, I'm going to destroy the Amalekites, which actually God ordained a long time ago, which should have been done. And again, if we look at this today, it's very difficult and it's hard to swallow. But it's something that we have to understand. And so then that leads us to what does God's justice look like? What does the King of Kings justice look like for us today? This idea of holy war. I'm going to go do this as fast as I can. So try to try to bear with me. First of all, when we look at passages like this, where God declares these things, you have to understand the first most fundamental thing. Every single person in this world deserves death. Nobody's void of that, including you, including myself. We see this in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. If you sin, you deserve death. That's what you earned. And we all would have to stand and say, I am a sinner. If you talk to anybody on the street, you'll find out very quickly they are a sinner. Sin runs rampant everywhere. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Scripture tells us. Therefore, all people, number one, deserve to die. Second thing that we see in Scripture, God did choose a people. He chose Israel, but he did not choose them because of their merit. He did not choose them because they earned it in any way, shape, or form. And I I think we need to be reminded of this. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, hear what it says in verses 4 through 6. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God is driving them out from before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, or know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people, he says. That's what God says about Israel. That's what God says about the people he chose. You would think that God would say, you guys are good looking, you guys are smart, You guys are the cream of the crop. Therefore, I choose you. You have displayed to all the nations what I want a person to be. Why I created people. Israel, this is why I chose you. And then God says to them right before they enter the promised land, hey, I need you to know something about yourself. You guys are kind of junky. You guys are a stiff-necked people. You guys have no righteousness in you whatsoever. The only reason I'm doing this is because those people are wicked and sin deserves death. Don't think you're special. Don't think you've done something to earn my favor. No, I've chose you. And so as we look at God's justice, we see that he chose Israel, not based on their merit, but because that's who he chose Then we see the nations who were destroyed by Israel was due to sin. We just read that. 
The reason these people were destroyed was fully because of sin. And now when I say that, there's something that we have to remember, though, about God. In Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, this is with Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Something that we have to understand when we're looking at God's justice is he says, I'm slow to anger. I am a God of mercy. You think about the different stories within scripture where God was willing to save Sodom and Gomorrah. He was willing to do it. I'm going to destroy the city. And Abraham's like, wait, what if I find this? All right. Well, what about this many people? All right. And it gets down to about 10. And even at 10, God's like, sure. There wasn't 10. There wasn't even 10 to be found. And what does it show us about God's justice? It was perfect. No one in that town was willing to repent. Even the people that were saved, even Abraham's family that were pulled out had to be dragged out. And some of them even looked back and died as a result. Or you can think about Nineveh with Jonah. That wicked nation of Nineveh, yet God's heart wanted to see them repent. And so he wanted to give them opportunity to repent. He wants to send Jonah, but Jonah was happy with his own salvation. But then eventually he goes and we see God saves Nineveh. Or even when the land was filthy, yet we see God save Noah and his family, who soon after they get off the boat, show their righteousness and sin again. So when we look at this God and we ask about God's justice and we read these passages about the nations being destroyed, don't think for a minute that God is not a God of mercy or that God has chosen a certain people and he gives them a pass because we also know with Israel that he would deal with their sinfulness. You remember Achan. As they would go and to, to destroy a city, God would say, don't touch anything, but Achan would steal and he would hide it in his tent, and the lot would fall to Achan. And you remember what happened to Achan. God destroyed Achan because of his sin, and not just Achan, his family as well, his whole family. When we look at God, it's hard for us to say he's not a God that is just, because he is a God that is just. In fact, he is a God of great grace and mercy, because as I said, we all deserve death. Nobody deserves to live. But yet God in his great mercy has chosen a people to save. So the question then that remains for us today, is holy war bad? Is it still needed? Is it something that we still see happen today? Is it something that should still be taking place? We hear this with the Muslims. They are still embarking on holy war. That's what they declare. Should the Christians counteract that? Should, should we declare holy war then? What is the answer? Well, I think God's word gives us the answer very clearly. Holy war has been dealt with thoroughly and completely through the blood of Christ. That's what Jesus did. When he says it is finished on the cross, holy war is not needed anymore. It is over. The victory has been obtained by him. There's no more need for it. In Luke chapter 9, Verse 54 and 55 says, when the disciples, James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Lord, do you want holy war? Was Jesus's response? No. No, he rebukes them. No, this isn't what we do. This isn't it. This isn't how it happens. And so Jesus came to satisfy God's wrath to conquer sin forever. So what Jesus has done is he's declared us his own. He has conquered sin in us, thus satisfying God's wrath and thus proving his justice in our life. Because Jesus paid the price for our sin, then God's wrath can be satisfied. It is unjust for us to say, 
God loves everybody, therefore, in the end, everybody will be okay. That's not justice. And God is perfect in his justice. That's why it's such a hard pill for people to swallow today because we've reduced God down to one word, love. And then we've defined the word. We haven't let God define the word. And that's why so many people have a hard time with passages like we are reading today that we'll read next week and that we read as they conquered the promised land. How could God do this? A God who loves would not do this thing. Listen, if God would not have done that, he would not be just. He would not be true in the things that he has said and the things that he has done. And we are thankful that he has given us Christ and that Christ would die on the cross to save us from our sins so that the wrathful justice of God would pass over us and be placed on Jesus. He took it for us. And that's good news, which brings me to my very last point. We see in here the joy of God's people. God's people praising him in Persia, right? We think, wait, 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 hold on. You're not saved yet. But we see them praising God. Why? Just because of the opportunity of salvation. Just because God has given them that option here, they're rejoicing and they're praising him, makes me ask the question, how much more should I praise God knowing that my salvation is sealed forever? I don't have to worry. It doesn't say to, God doesn't say to Tim, hey, Tim, here, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to give you a shot. Some guys are going to come to your house. I'm going to let you defend yourself. If you live, good job. You've won. If you don't, well, only the strong survive. You're out. I mean, that's kind of the edict that they were given. And they're rejoicing. But the edict that I've been given, the edict that you've been given if you're a child of God, is, oh, there's no enemy that can overtake you. I've already conquered him. No one's coming to your house, Tim. No one's coming to steal your things. No one's, no one's coming to take what I have given you. They, they can't do it. I, I've already secured it forever. Yet I don't know if you're like me. I, I struggle at times to praise God like I should. Because I think sometimes, God, if you really love me, can't I just dig that hole in my yard without all these problems? God, if you really love me, what about this? God, if you really were just, if you really cared, I've been really good this week. Give me a nice day. Give me this. Give me that. And I allow my joy to be robbed by Satan. When in fact, my life should be full of joy because of the promises of God, because of the salvation that cannot be took away from me. The writer of Hebrews talks about this in chapter 7, verse 20 through 24. Listen and follow along with me. It says, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, meaning Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Man, isn't that difficult? Those priests were so weak, they'd die. That's what he's saying. Those priests, we had to have a ton of them because they just kept dying. They couldn't be our priest forever. But verse 24 says, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, so because of this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the good news of the gospel. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to wonder at night when you go to bed, God, did I lose it today? God, if, if I die tonight, I'm not sure if I'm going to heaven or hell because I cussed three times today. I wasn't the best husband to my wife today. Therefore, I'm not sure. And so, God, I just want to cement it again to tell you that I love you again. The good news of what I just read in Hebrews chapter 7 is we don't do that 
because we don't hold our salvation. He does. He signed it. He sealed it. And it's forever. He lives forever. Nobody can take it away from him. The state cannot come in and say, Jesus isn't alive, therefore it's mine now. That doesn't happen. We have it signed and sealed forever. We are his. And so I can go to bed at night and lay my head on my pillow and my prayer can maybe sound this way instead. Lord, I thank you that you love me. Lord, I seek your face and forgiveness because I cussed three times today and I should not do that to a holy God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, God, that I failed my wife today. God, I'm sorry that I don't think, God, help me to do better, yes, but help me to understand I didn't lose anything today in you because you hold it. I don't. Now, we strive to do better, yes, because we want to honor a God who would do this for us. We want to please him. We, we want to do good in these things, but I don't do it so that he loves me. I do it because he loves me, and that's a big difference. And that is why we can have joy in our life as God's people. I don't walk around in shame. I don't have to walk around in guilt because Christ nailed that stuff to the cross. And it's over for me. He has declared me righteous through Christ. He has saved my soul by dying on that cross and raising again. And because that, I can worship him and I can live a life of joy completely and forever. I don't have to walk around sulking. I don't have to walk around mourning. Why? Because God has saved me. He's given me victory. And that's good news. So I hope that you believe that. I hope that you hold on to that this morning. I have no doubt though, because if you're like me, one of the things you struggle with, and this is what I want us to deal with this morning, I guess, in the end, for those of us who are Christians, you struggle with that old nagging thought that you're just not earning it enough. And it makes you feel like garbage. I know it does to me. So often. Because on my shoulders, I don't just have sometimes, Tim, you're a Christian. Uh, Satan likes to put on me too. You're also a pastor. And you just did that. You probably shouldn't be a pastor. You're probably not even a Christian. You probably should just quit it all. I mean, those are the thoughts that would come to my head because of, of slip-ups, of sin in my life. And it throws all this weight and it throws all this guilt, but I'm so thankful that God reminds me of this in his word. Tim, don't let that weigh you down. I've got you. You don't have me. I've got you. Oh, what joy that brings back to my life. What a release of the burden off my shoulders. Like in Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read that before, it just, just rolls down and off because of the grace of God. If you're a Christian this morning, stop carrying that baggage. Stop carrying that guilt. You know, last week I put a little guilt on parents about raising kids. It's not all on you. You gotta understand that. You need to try your best. Listen, and you need to do good things with your kids. Don't get me wrong. But your child's life is in the hand of God, not yours, not yours. Oh, I pray for my kids and I would love to direct their life. Don't get me wrong. I would probably be pretty good at it. But it's not in my hands. It's in God's hands. And I have to trust his goodness. I have to trust his grace. And so I beg of you, Christian, take that weight off. Get that weight off your shoulders because Christ died for it. He bears it. He carries it. He crushed it. He destroyed it. There's no need for you to do it anymore. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've never been saved by the grace of God. That gift is made available to you as God draws you. That you can be forgiven of your sin in your life. That Jesus will take all that sin on him and you will be forever forgiven by his grace and his love. That can be yours this morning. If the Holy Spirit's drawing you, if you're thinking, man, this makes sense to me. That could be God pricking your heart saying, this is for you. You are mine. Trust in me. It's nothing magical. It's a gift that God gives us. So if you haven't accepted that gift, I hope that you will this morning before you even walk out of this room. I'm going to ask if you would close your eyes and bow your head. Matt's going to come. We're going to close with a song. 
I'm gonna lead us in prayer. But I pray that you'll respond to God's word how you should this morning. As the Holy Spirit leads and guides you, I hope you feel burdens lifted and weights lifted because of the goodness of our God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for these promises. God, I pray that we would trust in your word and the truths of it. I pray that we'd be faithful to it. And God, yes, as, as Christians, we want to do better. And there's nothing wrong with that. We, we want to honor you more. There's nothing wrong with that. But God, a problem arises when we do that to earn your love. And I, we just don't find that in scripture. God, you love us. And so God, help us, yes, to do better because of that love, to honor you. Help us to be enthusiastic in sharing the gospel with people. For it not to be enough that I'm saved, but to have this desire for others to come to know him too, to honor the Lord. God, help us to be people of joy. Help us to be people who are satisfied in their life, who have a hope that is cemented and secure. Because God, that is attractive to other people and that opens the door to be able to share with them where that hope and joy comes from. So God, help me, I know in my life, to be joyful, that it would be obvious, that my kids would see it, that my wife would see it, that my family and friends would see it, and that I would be able to point them to you, that that's why it is, because he bears my burdens, my shame, my guilt. God, I'm so thankful that you are just. I'm thankful that you are loving. I ask that you would help us to know you more and to love you more each day of our life. God, as we sing this song now, help us to sing it honestly, hopefully. And God, help us to respond to your word how, how we need to this morning. We ask in Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.